Happy Blessed New Year, everybody. Children's Church, Junior Church, four years old through fourth grade. You're dismissed to walk. I just want to let every one of you know you can kind of check this off of your to-do list so far. Um, this year, you have had perfect church attendance. Good job. Some of you didn't get that. So um, I like reading new studies and all that, and I just found this out, and I maybe it's a morbid sense of um, curiosity, but I was reading this one article, and it was talking about when someone passes, and they had this Christian mindset of, of how the person is, is going to meet the, the Lord and everything, and it said, did you, what, did you know what part of your body actually dies last? This was really interesting. It's your eyes, because they dilate. That's a funny one. Yeah. Well, no, sit down. You're not leaving because of my jokes. So, okay. As Nick was saying, there's a lot of people who are choosing New Year's resolutions. I actually heard uh, this guy talking. He was um, ready to start the New Year's resolution with that number one, I'm going to lose weight. I'm going to exercise more and eat less food. He told his buddy, and the buddy says, you know what, I need to do that. If I ever, on the urge to go eat some junk food, how about if I call you? He goes, great, I'll ride with you. <laughs> All right, so I'm done. Let's, let's get into it. So, As a new year begins, we're beginning a whole new focus for our year. This year's theme is pursue. Uh, a godly uh, godly heart. We're going to have a quest for a godly heart. We're going to pursue so many things. There are so many things in this world that beckon us, that call to us to chase after them. And the loudest of those voices are generally fame and fortune. Athletes, TV, movie stars all believe they are the pinnacle of humanity because they have all the fame and they have all the fortune. Our world is desperately in need of actual good role models who are worth following. We need authentic heroes, people of integrity whose lives inspire us to be better, to climb higher, to stand taller. We all want people to look up to. We need people that we can walk behind. And if we look in the world, in our culture, we don't see that many. But the Bible is full of individuals who are great examples. David. David's life is certainly one worth studying and worth imitating at times. David is the only one in all of Scripture who is called a man after God's own heart. That statement alone should make us stop and look at him. Would it surprise you to learn that more has been written about David than any other Bible person except for Jesus? Abraham has some 14 chapters dedicated to his life. He's the father of the faith. He's the one who starts into the whole Israelites. Uh, Elijah, one of the greatest prophets, has 10. But King David... He has 66 chapters, if we're counting correctly. And that doesn't include the 59 scriptural reference to his life in the New Testament. David is the person mentioned more than any other Old Testament person in the pages of the New Testament. He is talked about more than any other person of the Old Testament. 
this year we're going to see that David is a poet. He's a musician. He's a courageous warrior. He's a national statesman. In battle, he acted with invincible confidence. In decisions, he, he came to it with wisdom. In, I forgot that word. In writing, he wrote with a transparent vulnerability with his quest towards God. In friendship, he was loyal to the end. Even in his promotion to the highest position of the land when he became king, he modeled integrity and humility. But having said all that, I don't want you to get the wrong idea about why God chose David or why God would choose any one of us then. David was great, but just like David, David, just like us, David was not perfect. Having earned the public's trust and respect, he forfeited all of that for a brief season of pleasure. Then as the consequences kick in, we discover another side of David. We see his lustfulness as a husband, his weakness as a father, and his ruthlessness as a leader. It's all in the Bible. It's all pointing to all that side. And what we learn is the Bible never flatters its heroes. It never pumps them up and lifts them up so that we think they are perfect people. It tells us the truth about each biblical character so that we can see that their real origin, their human breakdown and failure, which helps us understand and appreciate the grace of God and recognize that God delights in working through our weaknesses. And so David, of all the great men and women of the scripture, though far from perfect, leaves, uh, leaves us with lives lived with strengths that we can follow in a pattern with. And so this whole year, we're going to be looking at a quest for a godly heart for us and for a church. We're going to be looking in depth into the life of David. But before we can get into that, we've got to set the scene. We've got to set the stage. So we're going to back up about 40 years prior to David to see what was happening in Israel, the country in which David is born. Uh, Frederick Owen, in his book, Abraham to the Middle East Crisis, describes the people of ancient times this way. The people were on a long drift from God. Very simple statement. But when you look at that, the people were on a long drift from God. And he's talking about the ancient Israelites all the way into the Middle East. I think it could be said about a lot of people today in America. That's the world in which David was born. Eli, the high priest, and his wicked sons were gone. His God-chosen successor, Samuel, was the last of the judges, and he's an old man at this time. Samuel appointed his own sons to judge Israel, but that turns into a mistake. Look what it says in Samuel 8, 1 Samuel 8, 1 through 3. As Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons to be judges of Israel. Joel and Abijah, his oldest sons, held court in Beersheba. But they were not like their father, for they were greedy for money. They accepted bribes and perverted justice. The people, because this was known, were dissatisfied, and they wanted something done about it. What they really wanted, though, is not what God wanted for them. The elders of, the Israel, of Israel met with Samuel and gave him three reasons why they wanted a king. 
Verse 5, it says, look, they told him, you are now old, your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like the other nations have. There's three reasons they wanted a king. Samuel's old, your sons are evil, and we want to be like the other countries. They want to be like everyone else. God let them have exactly what they wanted, but God instructed um, Samuel to appoint a Benjamite named Saul to be the first king. In 1 Samuel 9, 2, it says, His son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. It's pretty much me, but taller. Okay? I thought so. Saul had a measure of humility to begin with. He seemed able to rally people around his cause. He was 40 years old when he started to rule, but before long he became very thin-skinned, hot-tempered, and given to seasons of depression. And David's born about 10 years after Saul became king. Not long after Saul began his reign, Samuel caught him in three serious acts of disobedience. Um, in 1 Samuel 13, Saul made a terrible decision. He became impatient when Samuel didn't arrive on time, so Saul offered a sacrifice that should have only been done by a priest of God. That was his first act of disobedience. Second, in chapter 14, Saul made a foolish oath that ended up putting his own son in jeopardy. And third, in chapter 15, Saul openly disobeyed God. Here's three things that he did consecutively, and look what happens when Samuel confronts him in 15 verses 24 and following. Saul admitted to Samuel, yes, I have sinned. I have disobeyed your instructions and the Lord's command, for I was afraid of the people and, and did what they demanded. But now please, please forgive my sin. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. Why was Samuel scared? What was it that caused him to openly disobey God? He was worried about his standing, his reputation with the people, not his walk with God. He put the people above God. 1 Samuel 15, 26, Samuel replied, I will not go back with you since you have rejected the Lord's command. He has rejected you as king of Israel. Samuel turned to leave at this point, and Saul reaches out and tore part of the robe, part of, part of his clothing. Verse 28, Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else, one who is better than you. Have you ever been told that there's someone better than you? I, there was a time when, uh, when I was younger, and there was this girl I really liked. And she likes someone else. And I go, why? Because he's better than you. Now, how do you think that made me feel? I was in fifth grade. I cried. Not in front of her because I had to show I was good. So I went behind the school by the slide and cried. So nobody could see me. But have you ever been told someone is better than you? I mean, do you ever go, oh, that's true. Yeah, that's a better person. That's always a, a kick in the gut. I don't think this very this sat well with Saul. He is king. He's been king for several years. Samuel, the prophet, said, God has torn this kingdom away from me to give it to someone better than you. I'm the best-looking guy. I'm tall. I'm ruggedly handsome. I'm fit. I'm a warrior. 
And yet God is saying there's someone better. Samuel, the prophet of God, and yet he goes through the same thing we go through so many times. Saul went through it, and Samuel's going to go through it. We often forget and don't realize that behind the scenes, God is in control. Samuel's here telling the king, you're no longer going to be king, which has just put a target on him, really. And now, what are we going to do, God? Samuel's kind of questioning. And he forgot, and we forget. God is always in control. God always knows what he's going to do. He's never at a loss saying, okay, let's go to plan B. God knows perfectly well what is best for us. Our problem is, Samuel's problem, we, we don't know what's best. And we trust our understanding more than his. Many times we find ourselves thinking and, or even speaking these words. Lord, if you would just tell me what you have planned, then I'll be in great shape. Just reveal it to me. Explain it to me. Then I will trust you. We may not say these words verbally, but we do say them. God, just tell me what to do so that I can trust you in living it out. But that's not faith. Faith is counting on God when we don't know what tomorrow holds, when we don't know what God is doing. In this episode of, of Saul's life, in Samuel's life, God knows what he is doing. Saul's sins are not going to hinder God's plan. Samuel ends up mourning for Saul because he knows that God has rejected Saul. But look what God does in verse 1 of chapter 16. The Lord said to Samuel, you have mourned long enough for Saul. I have rejected him as king of Israel, so fill your flask with olive oil and go to Bethlehem. Find a man named Jesse who lives there, for I have selected one of his sons to be my king. This should be great news, but immediately you look at the beginning of verse 2, Samuel's concerned. But Samuel asked, how can I do that? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Samuel is starting to act like Saul. Saul wanted to do all these things because he was afraid of somebody else and what they were going to do to him. Samuel here, but if I do this, Saul might kill me. He's already taken his eyes off of God, and he's looking at someone else. More worried about his standing with King Saul than his walk with God. This is one of my favorite things. I hate it in my own life, but I love reading it in Scripture the Lord doesn't answer Samuel's remark about Saul, but simply tells him this. Take a heifer with you, the Lord replied, and say that you have come to make a sacrifice to the Lord. Invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I'll show you which of his sons to anoint for me. He doesn't come and say, it's okay. He just basically says, get up and do what I said. When your mother said that to you, Nick, we know she said it to you a lot. When she said, get up. She didn't really have to repeat her instructions, did she? You knew them, and you knew you were in trouble, and so you just better get up and do them. I think this God's like, I'm not answering that. Get up and go do what I said. We don't have to be clever. Samuel didn't have to figure it out, and neither do we. All we have to do is obey God. Trust, have that faith in him that he does know what he's doing. Thankfully, that is what Samuel did. The next verse tells us Samuel obeyed the Lord. That's what that verse said. While God is motivating Samuel, David has no idea 
of his life is going to change forever. He doesn't know anything about what Samuel and God have been talking about over on the other side. What is David doing at this point? He's doing his job. He's taking care of sheep. Samuel gathers Jesse, some of his sons, and Samuel knows that one of these boys, one of these boys is going to be anointed as king, but he doesn't know which one. God didn't say, go and pick the tallest one, go and pick the handsome one. He said, go and I will show you. 1 Samuel 16, verse 6. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Now, why did he think that? I mean, if he came up here and he saw Dustin and then he saw me, he would say, obviously, we know which one's the better one. You can't speak in my sermons anymore. She said Dustin just as he raised his hand. That's not fair. Why do you think they, people would do that? Because they, they're judging on their outward appearance. Uh, probably, I think Samuel did this because Eliab looked like the type you would normally pick for a king. He was probably tall. He was probably impressive. Certainly he was a man of battle. He was one who was in the army, we can read in other scriptures. And so we know he was fit. He was a warrior. What Samuel couldn't see was the character. He could see the outward attire. He could see the, the stance, but he couldn't see the inside. He didn't see, as we will later in the 17th chapter, that Eliab is critical and negative and looked down on his younger brother. Samuel was enamored with the externals, like so many people in our culture. I, I got to see this um, commercial, and it's this guy who thinks he's the greatest player of all in the NBA, and he's doing this commercial about how we need sleep, and he's saying all these phrases, and I'm like, why would anybody listen to you? I mean, he holds no credibility. He's so what? He's good at basketball. He has nothing of influence over me, and yet he's here telling me I need to sleep more. The bags under my eyes can tell me that. I don't need him. What I need is somebody who's got strength and got character, who has integrity, who says this is what you need to do to better your faith, to better your walk with God, not somebody who says, we need sleep. We get so enamored with the externals. Look what God says to Samuel in verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That is a great verse and a scary verse. God knows your heart. He knows our motives. That is awesome and scary. Because he does this, because God knows this, the oldest son of Jesse is passed over, starting in verse 8. Then Jesse told his son, Abinadab, to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. Next, Jesse summoned uh, Shemaiah. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel, but Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any of these. And Samuel asked, Are these all the sons you have? There is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. 
We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. I think this is very interesting. As I was reading this, even Jesse, even the dad, didn't consider David. Here's all my grown sons, not the little pipsqueak. Jesse basically says, oh yeah, I forgot, there's still one. He's out there, you know, watching the sheep and the goats. You won't be interested in him. That's why I didn't invite him. Imagine David's situation. He's out in the field, faithfully keeping his sheep, when suddenly someone comes running. David, you're wanted back at the house. Now, if somebody ever comes to you and says, hey, mom and dad want to see you. Instantly, we, we generally go, oh, bad news. Something's wrong. David must have been wondering maybe what trouble is he in, what, what's happening here. Verse 12, so Jesse said for him, he was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes, and the Lord said, this is the one, anoint him. Now, what we can learn from this, he's the youngest. And according to scriptures, we can see he's probably a teenager, the youngest of Jesse's sons. He walks into the house, still smelling of sheep. And all of a sudden, an old man hobbles over, pours oil on his head. Josephus, the historian, says, Samuel, with the age whispered in his ear, you are the next king. He just came in. He didn't even have time to shower or anything. And what did David do? What would you do if you were in this situation? You come in from your job, and then all of a sudden you are anointed as the next king. I'll tell you what I'd do. Get me a truck. I'm going to drive around in my new truck. I'm the king. I can do what I want. I'm happy to report David didn't go try on any crowns. He didn't order any new set of business cards. He didn't shine up the chariot and race it through the, the streets of Bethlehem. He didn't start saying, hey, big brothers, I'm better than you. I am the anointed. I am the chosen. I'm God's choice. I mean, when a guy says, I'm God's gift to humanity, what do you think? What a joke, right? David didn't do that. Verse 13, so as David stood there among his brothers, Samuel took the flask of water of olive oil he had brought, anointed David with the oil. The Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on. Then Samuel returned to Ramah. Verse 13 says that. What did David do? You jump down to verse 19. Therefore Saul sent a message, sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me David your son, who is with the sheep. David the next anointed king went back out to the pasture. He went back out to the sheep. In the next chapter, there's a battle going on between Israel and the Philistines. And there's this giant that we all know as Goliath. We see David going back and forth, bringing stuff, um, provisions to his brother. Saul is there supposed to be leading the army, and he's hiding in the tent. And David is still taking care of the sheep. David didn't um, just barge in there. He had to ask, and then he said, look, this is not what God would do. Nobody can dishonor my God. It made no difference at that point that Samuel had anointed him. David didn't get a brass tag commemorating that day. He didn't expect special treatment for others. He just went back to sheep faithfully to await God's time to promote him to this position. We have Saul, who took charge, who led his way, and made sure to get it his way. 
And then we have David, who is promoted and anointed as the king, and he steps back into obscurity. He steps back and waits. I believe there are a number of powerful lessons that we can see here in how God chooses people. Second Chronicles 16 verse 9 says, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. God is scanning the world, looking to give his strength to people whose hearts are fully committed to him. It didn't say that to those who can sing wonderfully. To those who could give great big ties. To those who can work super hard. To those of us who are incredibly good looking. What does he say? To those whose hearts are fully committed to God. God's eyes are looking around. Those who are committed to God. He is looking for those qualities. The same qualities we see here in David. So what qualities do we see? First, we see David was spiritually minded. David had a heart for God, it says. His life was in harmony with God. What was important to God was important to David. David did what God desired and tried to avoid what God disapproved of. He walked in communion with the Lord. He was a spiritually minded man. When he looked at Goliath, he saw a puny person compared to God. So that's the first thing, spiritually minded. The second quality we see in David is his humility. He had a servant's heart. He faithfully carried out the humblest of duties. And even after God made him somebody, made him the next king, he continued to be humble and still go take care of the sheep. Third quality we're going to see in David is integrity. Integrity is what you do when nobody's looking. And David could be trusted out there in the wild to take care of his sheep when nobody was looking. These are qualities. You want a, a New Year's resolution? These are the qualities we should be striving for that we need to be working on our lives. Do you have a spiritual mindset? Do you have a humble heart and a heart of integrity? These are the things that pleases God, and when he finds that person, he pours out his strength. That's what that scripture said. So you don't do it on your own. You want this. Your heart is committed to him, and then he says, here, now you can do it. Here's the strength to accomplish this. We learn a lot from the beginning of the story of David. Something about the way that God prepares and and develops people for service. But how does God train his people? God trains them in a certain way. Look how God trains. He doesn't just call them. God trains David in solitude. David was often alone with God in quiet places. None of us are going to be able to have that spiritual life, that spiritual mindset, without spending time with God in solitude. Something that Jesus even did. Luke 5, 16. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. He withdrew from earthly companionship to focus on his spiritual connection. God expects us to seek out time. To be with him. 
which means as we start this year, we need to make sure we devote that time alone, focus solely on God. Secondly, we can see that God trained David in obscurity. Men and women of God are often unknown, unseen, and unappreciated, which means they get unapplauded. A lot of what you see around here goes unnoticed. The building is cleaned. The bulletins and slides are done. Landscaping, shoveling the snow, plowing the parking lot, mowing the lawn. These all get done without an audience. And it seems that that in the relentless demands of obscurity, character is built. Because the ones who do all those things aren't turning their backs saying, okay, now, now you can pat me for it. Look what I did over here. The rewards are done for God and received from Him. Those who first accept the silence of obscurity are best qualified to handle the applause of popularity. I, I want to say that again. I didn't write that line. I found it in a, in a commentary. Those who first accept the silence of obscurity are best qualified to handle the applause of popularity. It's because they have a spiritual mindset first. And the third training ground God uses is monotony. Let me tell you, I don't like that. I don't like having to do the same thing over and over and over again. The same task repeated constantly, the monotony of that all. And when I was working in this one factory, um, we did the same thing every five minutes. It was a, I just did the same thing over and over, and I had to do this process around uh, four, three to four hundred times that a night just to get enough of the parts to do that. Hated it. It was a good job. It had good things, good benefits. There was good things in it, but I didn't didn't really like it. But yet, when I was there, do you know what was happening? Doing the same thing over and over, my mind started focusing more and more on God. And then I started thinking of him more and more. And he started training and teaching me on how to talk with people, to relate with them more. And God trains us in monotony. Are we willing to prove ourselves to be faithful in these little things? Are we willing to do the menial, insignificant, routine unexciting things of daily life and ministry, because that's when God really can train us. God is in the business of growing and transforming people. He wants to help us cultivate a heart for Him. We're on this quest for a godly heart. We're going to pursue God. And because of that this year, He is going to pour into us and help us achieve those things. And one thing we need to realize is that God works with us in our inner qualities. He is never, when he is working, in a hurry. Alan Redpath, in a book about David, he said, The the conversion of the soul is a miracle of the moment. You get saved in a moment. The manufacture of a saint is the task of a lifetime. You can become a child of God in a moment, but to become a person after God's own heart does not happen at one point. It is a task of a lifetime. When God develops character, he's going to do that over our lifetime. He's never in a hurry. As long as we're still breathing, it's not too late to allow God to work on our hearts. This whole year, we're going to look at how God led David, how God worked in and through David, and how God gave David this godly heart. 
and how God is still doing that today in men and women who are pursuing a heart after God. This year, this brand new year, 2022 is actually here. And have you chosen to make sure that this year you are going to pursue God? This isn't a New Year's resolution. This is a promise to God. Because it said in Chronicles, his eyes are looking for the people whose hearts are fully committed to him. And when he finds them, he strengthens them. So are you ready to be on a quest for a holy, godly heart? Then let's pursue him. Let's set aside the the things of this world the fame and the fortune. Let's set aside the popularity and only focus on pursuing God. For some, that means you're going to have to change your routine. Quit going through the motions of Christianity and actually take those first steps to be active, pursuing God. That's an action word. It's not one where you sit on Sunday and accept it. It's one where you actively do these things. So are you willing to do that? Are you willing to stand up and say, I'm ready to make faith my action, my life, my focus in God? For some of you, that means for the first time saying, I want to pursue God. I want to give up my life and give my life fully to Him to be baptized and raised new into Him. If you need to make that decision, when we stand and when we sing, will you come forward? Let's pray. Let's stand and let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your son. We thank you that he died for us. We thank you that through him, people who are obscure, who are forgotten like David, can be raised up because of your strength. And as you've done that in David, I ask that you would do that in and through the people in this church right now. That you would help us to let go of the world, to focus fully on you, to, to let go of the, the pulls and the, the distractions and to fully pursue you. Help us to be a real church, a real church full of people who are united on the, the principles of who your son is and what you are going to do in through us. Thank you, God, for your word. And in Jesus, we all pray. Amen.